0: It's midday on the first Monday of September, spring has sprung and there could be no better time to put up your feet and join us for Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, coming to you from the Artscape Theatre in Cape Town. I'm Cindy Moritz and I'm once again delighted to bring you this month's choice of good books from our switched on team of readers. Penny Lorimer shares the drama of Louise Candlish's Those People and revisits private detective Jackson Brody in Kate Atkinson's latest Big Sky. John Hanks describes The Field Guide to the Frogs and Other Amphibians of Africa by Alan Channing and Mark Oliver Rodell as an ambitious undertaking that he highly recommends. And then he credits Matradi Khadi Pans, a traveler's guide to the salt flats of Botswana, for his decision on where to travel next. Beryl Eichenberger was transfixed by Elif Shafak's 10 minutes 38 seconds in The Strange World, in which the reader is exposed to the captivating last moments of Leila's life under the skies of Istanbul. Philippa Shafas taught Philippa Schaefferts tosses in a bit of culinary sass with a review of Zola Nanny's Simply Zola. And Leslie Beek returns with her choice of children's books, the delightful What's Up Toko, written and illustrated by Nikki Daly, and Rudge and the Best Day Ever by Seb Brown. And Vanessa Levenstein, deeply moved by the passing of American icon Toni Morrison, compares... Remembered by Yvonne Battle Felton to Morrison's Beloved in a sensitive and perceptive way. In studio with me today is the author of the already much discussed Zephanie, Joanne Joel, who will share some of her insights around telling this multi-layered story. Please stay listening for our simple competition in which a lucky listener can win one of the fabulous books we have reviewed today. Penny Lorimer, you were quite captivated by the goings-on in both Those People by Louise Candlish and Big Sky by Kate Atkinson.
1: Hell hath no fury like a property owner threatened, my dad used to say. This aphorism is certainly well illustrated in the latest thriller by Louise Candlish called Those People. Lone and Way is a quiet, respectable street somewhere in London, inhabited by quiet, respectable people who work hard at maintaining a quiet, respectable neighbourhood. A leafy environment, family homes, a charming b and b pet dogs, baby swans in a nearby park, and a weekly event in which cars are kept away to allow children to play in the street makes it a perfect place to live. That's until one aged resident dies, leaving her house to an unknown relative. He and his partner move in, and immediately begin loud disruptive renovations, and start a used car business in the front yard. Oh horror! The novel opens with the unexpected death of an unidentified character who is caught up in the local drama. It then backtracks some weeks to describe the build-up to this event, focusing on the inhabitants of the four closest houses to that of the interlopers. The situation becomes a catalyst for fraying tempers fractured relationships secrets kept and primitive urges desperate for release have you ever suffered from the bad behavior of people in your community barking dogs noisy children too frequent parties horrible music dangerous driving or any unrepentantly selfish or boorish behavior If so, you will completely identify with the shock, frustration, and ultimately murderous feelings of the characters who live closest to the lower-class interlopers in the suburban Eden. Everyone's home is their castle, and many of us, yes, fellow South Africans, are shamefully familiar with fears about falling property values brought about by the behaviour of people who are simply not like us. Those people is a slightly uncomfortable but satisfying read. Kate Atkinson has been one of my favourite authors ever since her standalone debut novel, Behind the Scenes at the Museum. Since then, she's written many more, including a series of thrillers featuring ex-policeman, now private detective, Jackson Brodie. There's been a bit of a hiatus since the last one, published in 2010, but, thank goodness, Jackson Brodie has now reappeared in the latest and fifth instalment, Big Sky. In this episode, he's relocated to a quiet seaside village in North Yorkshire. At the start of the story he has a rather tedious assignment following a cheating husband. He sometimes does this together with his aging dog and sarcastic teenage son of whom he shares custody with his former girlfriend Julia, who appeared in the first Jackson Brodie novel. In fact a couple of other characters reappear too, such as little Reggie, once teenage babysitter, now a grown-up and super-efficient policewoman. Soon, a chance encounter with a suicidal man on a crumbling cliff, employment by a trophy wife who thinks she's being followed, and witnessing a young girl climbing into a stranger's car all intersect with a sinister network of human traffickers with links to a past ring of child sexual abusers. Lost Girls is a familiar theme in Kate Atkinson's books, and here a nasty trio pose as a recruitment agency for the British hospitality sector. They lure in Filipinas and Eastern Europeans with the promise of lucrative hotel jobs only to imprison them and forcibly drug them before selling them on. Like any proper hero, Jackson Brodie is a flawed and therefore empathic human being. A large amount of our time with him is spent sharing his innermost thoughts which, like our own, or like my own anyway, are mostly pedestrian and often ridiculous. In fact, the richness of this novel comes mainly through the histories and motivations of many of the characters, with all their emotional ups and downs, their humour and their tragedy, circling together on the multidimensional plot carousel. Once again, Jackson bumbles his way, bruised and battered, he seems to get injured a lot, to solutions, and the story to its conclusion, which though not completely legal, seems nevertheless fair and just. The two books I reviewed are Those People by Louise Candlish and Big Sky by Kate Atkinson.
0: John Hanks recommends Alan Channing and Mark Oliver Rodell's Field Guide to Frogs and Other Amphibians in Africa and Armchair Travels to Northeastern Botswana in Machadikari Pans, A Traveler's Guide to the Salt Flats of Botswana by Graham MacLeod.
2: Among the great delights and memories for my wife and I of a recent trip to the Tankra Karoo National Park was the timeless sense of peace, solitude, and totally untransformed vistas stretching as far as the eye could see. In deciding where to go next, our minds had been made up by Graham MacLeod's excellent traveller's guide to Botswana's Makatikari Pans, arguably one of the country's best kept secrets and clearly worthy of an extended visit. Situated at northeastern parts of Botswana, between the well known Chobe National Park and the arid Kalahari game reserve to the south, the extraordinary attraction of the unexpected diversity of the vegetation and wildlife to be found in and around the twelve thousand square kilometers of one of the largest salt flats in the world have been superbly captured by Graham MacLeod in this beautifully illustrated new travel guide. He writes with passion and enthusiasm for the immutable landscapes and feeling of space and the opportunities to appreciate the visual spectacle of the skies at night, far removed from the visual pollution of electric lights. But unlike so many other travel writers, he's clearly spent a great deal of time in the area in the dry and wet season, for example, calling attention to the need for caution when attempting crossing areas of wet clay where it's only too easy to sink deep down to the axles in a place where one vehicle disappeared entirely and never to be seen again. A surprising number of other travel guides do not include contact details of key services and facilities and places to stay, ranging from campsites to luxury lodges. McLeod has done this admirably, adding a further chapter on useful practical information for visitors. He certainly succeeded in making me want to spend time in a part of Africa I've never visited. The title again of Graham MacLeod's book is Pans: A Traveller's Guide to the Salt Flats of Botswana. It's published by Straight Travel and Heritage in Cape Town and you can buy a copy for 230 rand. To produce a field guide of the frogs and other amphibians of Africa really is a most ambitious undertaking. There are some 815 species of amphibians on the African continent and many of them are little known species with very restricted distributions in remote and isolated places ranging from deserts to rainforest. This huge initiative undertaken by two of the world's leading amphibian authorities, namely Alan Channing and Mark Oliver Riddell, would not have been possible without must have been an unprecedented level of assistance from a wide range of colleagues who supplied photographs and other information. Starting with a well-presented introduction which sets out the arrangements of the book and how to use it to identify species found in the field, The authors have given concise descriptions of each species, with colour photographs, up-to-date distribution maps, and a summary of habitats, and where known, the advertisement calls and notes on biology. The photographs are particularly remarkable, as they show not only the extraordinary variation in colours and patterns between the species, but also the variance within species, an important characteristic of amphibians which can be too easily overlooked. For example, the common reed frog, which extends from the tip of South Africa right through Africa to Eritrea and the Red Sea, has astonishing polymorphisms with over 50 colour patterns, with six of these variants being beautifully illustrated in the book. Even the night and day colour of individual species can differ significantly and not all the colour morphs are known and have been recorded. With colour and pattern being so variable, it is the characteristic calls of each frog and is the most reliable means of identification. This is a book that all biologists and nature lovers must have in their collection. I strongly recommend that you buy a copy and take it with you and use it when you travel to the field. The title of Alan Channing's and Mark Oliver Riddell's book is Field Guides to the Frogs and Other Amphibians of Africa. It's published by Straight Nature in Cape Town and you can buy a copy for 400 rand.
3: May I have the pleasure of your company as we trip the life, fantastic we call life. If I can have the pleasure of your company, I'll be a Robbie Burns to your Will Five. Oh boy, I'll be by that. Find a bar on which to lean, becoming at increasing speed, fast friends indeed. So may I have the pleasure of your company to tag along wherever fate may lead. of your company on this crazy quilt adventure we call life. If we can have the pleasure of their company We'll treat the bunny lassies like wife. Oh boy, old bean By that I mean you have a pal on A buddy in your hour of need, a friend indeed. So may I have the pleasure of your company to tag along wherever fate may lead. Of your company as we trip the light, fantastic we collide. If I can have the pleasure of your company, I'll be a Robbie burns to your fire. To lean, becoming at increasing speed, fast friends indeed. So may I have the pleasure of your company. To.
0: That was The Pleasure of Your Company, sung by Cape Town crooner, Harry Curtis. Last month, anyone who had been following the story of Zephanie Nurse, the baby that was taken from her birth mother in April of 1997, and who was found by chance 17 years later, finally got to hear from the child herself, a now adult, Michelle Solomon. Chosen to tell that story was author Joanne Joel, who has a particular style of writing, described as creative nonfiction, that perfectly suited the story. Joanne is with me in studio today to talk about writing Zephanie. Joanne, thank you for joining us on FMR Book Toys this month.
4: Such a pleasure. And
0: congratulations on a pitch-perfect telling of the Zephanie Miché story. Thank you. You have a distinct style of writing, creative nonfiction, in that you insert yourself into the telling that makes you a part of the narrative without being intrusive. You've achieved this in your previous books as well and seem to have honed your skill with Zephany. How did this come to be your chosen style?
4: I fell into it a little bit because my original career path was um, heading towards psychology and I was studying psychology and doing an honours in psychology and then I went off to get life experience before I took it further and life experience led me to business and then it led me back to kind of an original passion, which was creative writing. It had never been something I'd considered to do as a career. I just always loved to write. I'd always loved to read. Um, And I I set out upon an autobiographical project and then eventually a master's in creative writing at UCT. And it was there um, under the tutelage of some very, very clever people um, that I was actually steered towards nonfiction and shown a whole world that I hadn't really considered From a creative point of view And it seemed to be non-fiction And obviously bi- biography in particular Seemed to be this perfect Blend of these two passions of mine of, of of psychology and creative writing and it was really just about taking the stuff that I found so interesting in real life and which really I, I just don't have that fiction writer's brain to to turn to, to turn things into into the mysteries and the quandaries and the and the difficulties that you might find in a, in, a, in a fictionalized novel um, I, I I just I'm I'm am too caught up with what happens in real life and I I think you cannot write that stuff. I right. mean in Truth the case is, of Zephaniah right. it's just it's is, is is often
0: stranger, than fiction, stranger as, than fiction as people say. Exactly. And so um, that's how. So Zephanie's story Zephaniah Miche's story um, perhaps you'll you'll give a little bit of a recap but gaining trust is is crucial for a biographer and mm-hmm. the story was more sensitive than most. Um Miche had rejected other authors before she met you. How did she how did you get to the point where Michele decided you were the one to tell the story.
4: She had the, the initial approach to me actually came through a publisher. As you say, she had been through um, a, a process of figuring out the prospect of writing a book um, at the time, together with her biological parents, um, and that had that had fallen away. And she had, in in you know, subsequent to that, met one or two two writers, but. It hadn't for her, her felt right. It it wasn't only about the writers themselves. I think it was also about the process that she was um, going through at the time. And um, she came to me through this um, publishers, through Tafelberg Publishers, um, as an entirely disconnected third party with absolutely nothing to do with the story up until that point. Really just as a Hopefully, sensitive biographer, and we met. We had a kind of a, a casual coffee to meet, literally a you know, Michelle meet Joe, Joe meet Miche. and um, and we sat and chatted, and we had a a very casual, lovely time. And um, she decided that I I felt like somebody she could talk to, hopefully more and more openly. Um, but as you say, the relationship and the trust building process is almost more important than the, than the writing mm. itself and it, mm. it is the most important part of the book writing process and that needs time mm. and um, so in order for her to decide who that person was going to be and then work on that relationship building up she needed to to, to have multiple opportunities to say yay or nay mm. and um, we, we hit it off very easily mm. initially and, mm. and, and pretty quickly mm. and it comes through in the book uh, in that you
0: you transcribe uh, almost what she says but it's that she's so open and honest that she hasn't really held back um, in any way that the reader would would know and um, I think that trust comes through throughout the book and in the end she she thanks you um, quite uh, openly and honestly for being the best person she could have chosen to write the book. So I think that was a great union. Um, But as you say, it took time Mm. and timing was an issue with the story. Um, Although Michelle was discovered in early 2015, she wasn't yet 18 and it was decided to protect her identity even after she technically became an adult in the eyes of the judicial system. Mm. So you had to keep it all top secret and... Wait for the Big Reveal, which ultimately came in August in, in last month, 2019. How did you manage to keep it all under wraps?
4: Oh, that was very, very hard because part of my process with biography and, and writing is to to think it out and to talk it out. Um, not necessarily. I mean, very, I don't usually broadcast my projects, but I mean, they've never been top se- top secret like this. I do need to have my own therapist who has, you know, the the permission to receive the information. And I think it's purely because of of patient client confidentiality um, that 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 that's allowed to be. And it's, <laughs> it should be written into the contract with the publisher because without a You know An an independent Therapeutic voice Of my own To to take this This stuff to It can be very Very difficult to hold Mm. Um, One is dealing with Deep 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 trauma Mm. um, And all sorts of Human interest issues Mm. And one has to remember At the heart of this is Wow A young girl And now a young woman Dealing with Really an an Unthinkable situation Mm. Um, So We Yeah I mean Keeping it secret was It's a All the journalists in town know what it means to keep that secret because, um, as you you rightly put it, the identity protection order was put in place literally with minutes to spare before Mm -hmm. Miche turned 18 um, and is actually part of a broader case Mm -hmm. that the Center for Child Law has brought Mm -hmm. um, now at the Constitutional Court to, to by default, protect Mm -hmm. all uh, children beyond the age once Mm -hmm. they turn 18 and to have their Revelation of their identity be th- of their own choosing, and yes. and that's really something that that people need to understand about this story is that the lifting of the identity protection order, which eventually happened mm-hmm. um, in August, um, that was of Michelle's choosing. That was because of her own affidavit to put that application to the courts. Um, it had been put in place to protect her to give her the time to come to terms with really a very, very difficult situation. And when she felt ready and that it was necessary for her to – I mean, she certainly didn't have to, but she felt she had something to share and she Mm. felt she wanted to share it publicly, um, she could then put in the application to have Mm. that that order lifted. And that's Mm. that's the kind of timing that we were working with um, from a writing and publishing point of view and also, of course, from a media point of view
0: and I think that also comes through in the book quite mm-hmm. clearly, that this case was not only, this publishing of the book was not only about Michelle's story, but also about, as you say, her having been ready, and it was her timing and her mm-hmm. choice to to um, talk publicly, which I think uh, sets a, an amazing precedent, and as you say, in the uh, in the greater scheme of things, this, this story has a, a lot of more relevance than what might um, seem at first. Um, as you say, you've got your background in psychology, and obviously that helped you to investigate and present the different points of view that you've included in the book, but at one stage you you mentioned that you found yourself in a biographer's quandary that your eyes in the telling are mishés, yet you still managed to intersperse multiple viewpoints and in so doing create layers of understanding for the reader with three distinct players in the story either having declined to be interviewed or having been deprived of the chance. So My question to you is, are people's stories ever entirely told?
4: You know, the biographer's quandary is, for me, so much about this issue of objectivity or subjectivity. And whether I, as a biographer, am duty-bound. I'm not sure who puts that duty on, but certainly not a contract-bound, but duty-bound to to occupy... um, a disengaged and a um, an arm's length kind of relationship with my subject. And I, I, I don't believe that that is the case. I believe that's a journalist's role. But a biographer's role, or certainly as I have chosen to take on that role, is um, there is a lot more um, at stake in terms of uh, the relationship that I build with my subject. And therefore, entire objectivity is to me virtually impossible um but how i try the device that i use to try and um at least create a sense of roundedness in the telling and therefore to your question about is a story ever fully told is to include the the viewpoints of other crucial players in the story um so in the case of michelle in terms of people we were able to access it is her father michael um, the father who raised her. Um, it is her high school teacher and r- r- pillar of support, Sophie Boerter, Jufro um, as she calls her. There is, um, uh, Masha who was one of the, um, Department of Social Development, um, employees who helped Michelle during the revelation of her story. Um, and then there's, of course, Anne Skelton, who's the lawyer who dealt with her and, um, and, Uh, Joan Farnikag who plays the crucial role of the social worker and the therapist who is Mm. able to counsel her through all Mm. of this and through them we get um, the so-called objective viewpoint a bit of a bird's eye view as to what was going on from the outside looking in Mm. um I say in an ideal world, but again, I put that in parentheses because, um, I did try and access Celeste and Mornay nurse who are Michelle's biological parents, um, and whose story we have all followed for almost 20 years Mm -hmm. now, over 20 years of losing their child, um, and other members of the nurse family, but, um, they declined to be involved and, um, were, would not allow any of their, their children either, so in this case Cassidy the sister of Miché who looked so much like her and because mm-hmm. of whom the story all started unfolding um, mm-hmm. to be interviewed so those points of view are not included in the book and neither is Lavona Solomon, um, the mother who no. raised Miché who is in, in jail sure. um, so maybe that's for a sequel mm, um, I would <laughs> love their views, I, I but would
0: add to those viewpoints your own because I think your right. uh, link linkage of the different points of view and telling of the story and you know, you help the story progress in such a way that it actually resonates with the reader. In that you're guiding us almost by the hand through the various stages and, and aspects of the story.
4: I do try occupy, and I think that is my role to kind of occupy the reader's position. If mm. you're looking at, if you kind of consider, like in the, in the case of a play, you know, yes. then you've got the audience and you've got mm. the, the role players and then you've got the backstage. Mm. I do try to occupy the reader's position, and as the author, put to the the subject mm. in writing and in our interviews, mm. questions that a reader would mm-hmm. want to Which, answer. It answered. And, Joanne,
0: one of the things that
4: you've mentioned since the publication
0: and the revelation was that there's been a lot of judgment um, of Michel, of the story, of the various players in the story. Um, it's, it's been a key term in your response to the many comments and opinions voiced on social media and other media. How has writing this book changed or reinforced your view on judgment
4: of other people's stories? Well, there 's that um that saying you know walk a walk a mile in someone else 's shoes before you really know their story i yeah. mean i think um and we say that, and we say that uh, you know as as uh, hopefully warm blooded human beings we we can say that with meaning and intention, but I think mostly we don't live it, and we are very quick to judge, and we are very quick to judge without all the information and I think mm. that's really been my been my my big disappointment um and frustration with the with the the process in the last couple of weeks since the book has come out is that um conclusions have been jumped to Mm. without Hearing Michael's reading Miche's without book, reading the book without reading right. the book, and yeah. I, and and really that is my mm. answer to all mm. these because there has been, as you say, a lot of uh, public criticism of Miche, mm. um for telling her story at all, mm. going public with it, um, for how her management of her relationship very mm. difficult. Please mm. let's understand mm. relationship with her biological parents mm. and the the family who raised her, and um, and I think to them I say, and not one of those critics has read the book, mm. um, and to them, I say, you Read know, hear book. from the girl mm-hmm. herself. She's taken the mm-hmm. step of, of telling well, her story. They
0: can actually hear you speak on Sunday. You're going to be speaking with Michelle at the Open Book Festival. So listeners, if you haven't got your tickets for that book now, I'm sure it's going to be as riveting as the book. Joanne, thank you for joining us today, for coaxing out the story so gently and thoughtfully, and for highlighting the broader societal issues that emerged from this particular case. I'm looking forward to hearing your conversation at Open Book. Thank you so much And um, we have, if you um, have not read the book um, A giveaway for you A copy of Zephanie, Two Mothers, One Daughter An Astonishing True Story by Joanne Joel Simply call us on 021-401-1013 And answer this easy question Which season has just sprung in Cape Town? The winner will be contacted after the show, so don't delay and get calling now. The number again, 021-401-1013. was Embraceable You, sung by Aviva Pelham. Beryl Eichenberger, you're a big fan of Elif Shafak. Tell us about her latest 10 minutes 38 seconds in The Strange World.
5: If you have not read any of Elif Shafak's books, I urge you to do so. This British-Turkish author is a major literary force and is the most widely read female author in Turkey her cv is impressive with numerous awards a phd in political science lecturing posts memorable TED talks and as a member of a number of global organizations as well as an advocate for human rights lgbt and freedom of speech she is not afraid to write about difficult subjects sexual harassment gender violence and child abuse all come under her microscope with engaging characters who leap off the page befriending you in a way that gives them a life that we recognize. Connecting with them brings understanding. For this very reason, she cannot return to Turkey, as she is one of the writers of fiction who is being investigated in what campaigners are describing as a serious threat to free speech. Her new novel, 10 minutes 38 seconds in this strange world, reflects all the issues and brings into sharp focus the parochial society that exists in Turkey and the plight of those who don't conform. Shafak's talent is unpeeling the layers that make up Istanbul and its peoples, a city that merges and melts into a thousand different guises, a melting pot of cultures, or as Shafak puts it, Istanbul was an illusion, a magician's trick gone wrong. A modern city, an ancient city, imperial versus plebeian, global versus parochial, the list goes on. It is here that the beginning is the end for the murdered prostitute, Tequila Leila, dumped in a wheelie bin on the outskirts of Istanbul. The title of the book is drawn from doctors' observation of brain activity after death, lasting for up to 10 minutes, 38 seconds. Using this, Shafak gives Leila a voice as she tells her story of life, love, friendship and death. Set between the late 1940s and 1990, it is against the backdrop of political unheaval through the mediums of time tastes and smells each minute brings a new memory from the salt of her birth and her young mother whose rightful title was given to the senior and much older first wife of the volatile Harun, to the exotic flavors that color a city built on the trade of spices 1953 And lemons and sugar dominate as she watches the ladies use this mixture to wax their bodies, but also discovers who her real mother is. The birth of her brother. A spiced goat stew is the taste. Watermelon from the summer when she is sexually abused by her uncle. cardamom coffee associated with the street of Brussels, where she has lived since she ran away to Istanbul as a result of outing her uncle. Years later... When Layla spells her name as L-E-I-L-A as opposed to L-E-Y-L-A, she laughingly says she traded the Y of yesterday for I of infinity. 1968, the American Sixth Fleet is in port, and artist and revolutionary Dali drops into her life, chocolate bonbons with a surprise filling inside. We travel back and forth in her memory as the minutes tick, We meet the five, her closest friends, all misfits bound together by their lack of convention, but also their deep caring for Leila, the voice of reason and positivity, despite her profession and her history. Shafak says that when she is writing, she doesn't know where the characters will take her. And those that emerge in this novel are unusual, enduring, disparate, profoundly damaged, but wonderfully lovable characters who share an unbreakable bond. Each has a story which is chronicled in the most engaging of terms. Meet Sabotage Sinon, the son of the widowed pharmacist, an only child raised by a single mother, unheard of in the conservative village of Van. He is Layla's first real friend, one who, like her, did not conform. Lonely and cripplingly shy, he lives with the knowledge that he allowed her to escape the village. Nostalgia Nalan. transvestite with the haunting voice and tough exterior it is she who gathers the five together to save Layla from an ignominious resting place in the cemetery of the companionless lebanese zenab 122 a dwarf of 122 centimeters the cleaner in the brothel shunned by the public but devoted to Layla. somalian jamila the foreigner trafficked to istanbul hollywood humera escaping an abusive marriage to come to the city using her rich voice to work the nightclubs this is not an easy story but shafak writes with such a poetic flow that you are engaged from the beginning and compelled to read every word i absolutely love this book and though the subject matter is hard and very real she is a born storyteller and her stories leave a very strong impression on your brain and on your heart. But let Shafak have the last word. In the age of anger, tribalism and apathy, we need stories of connectivity, humanism and empathy. In the face of binary oppositions, we need to promote a more nuanced way of thinking. Wherever there is a decline in democracy, we will see an increase in censorship and intolerance. Today, more than ever before, Literature has to be not only about stories, but also about silences and the silenced. It has to become a sanctuary for the disempowered and the marginalized across the world.
2: The thrilling Daniel Karitanov, a laureate of the 2015 Tchaikovsky Piano Competition, is back with the Cape Town Philharmonic Orchestra for the Friends' Benefit Gala on Thursday, the 5th of September at the City Hall at 8 p.m. He'll perform Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini, with the CPO's principal guest conductor Bernard Gurl on the podium. Also on the program are Liadov's From the Apocalypse and Mahler's Symphony No. One, The Titan. Tickets from seat and Ticket. Spicy Patagonian calamari, chargrilled beef sirloin, almond and espresso crumble with palm sugar whipped cream. Savored to the sounds of live jazz. The starters from in the Radisson Blue Hotel and Residence is serving the best winter specials and the best live jazz entertainment from Thursday to Sunday. Enjoy a choice of two dishes from the starter, the main and the dessert. All this for just 200 grand. To book, call the Stratus Room on 021-467-4000. Philippa Schaefitz
0: discovered culinary joy in Zola Nene's Simply Zola.
6: Simply Zola by Zola Nene published by Stroke Lifestyle My salads like me, write Zola, have a bit of sass. Just like Zola, her sensationally tasty salads are big and beautiful, brightly dressed. There's a roasted tomato, crouton and beef salad, a barley grape and pecanut salad, a rainbow glass noodle salad to name a few. The Tex-Mex salad is served in a home-baked tortilla basket. There's no shortage of good ideas in the second cookbook by Zola. Her first cookbook, Simply Delicious, won the best in the world in her category at the Gourmand Cookbook Awards. is a celebrity chef, loved for her TV shows, also well-known as a judge on the Great South African Bake Off. In the second cookbook, she follows with more of her irresistible recipes easy enough for the home cook. She includes some interesting chapters. All-day breakfast, Breakfast breakfast-inspired dishes to enjoy any time of day. Dinner for one, all Zola's favourite weekday meals when dining alone, from a downsized pea and mint risotto to a hot smoked trout and courgette frittata. One-pot wonders are perfect for families or sharing with friends. A babuti meatball curry, chicken and butternut pan roast, bourrevos and butter bean stew. The chapter on vivacious veggies is true to its promise. Cocktails and nibbles are seductive in its five o'clock somewhere. Sweet endings are all minimum fuss, maximum flavour. With time on hand, enjoy working through the chapter on weekend baking. And a thoughtful inclusion of gluten-free recipes, a gluten-free flatbread, an orange and thyme cake with maize meal and ground almonds that everyone will want to bake, gluten intolerant or not. Zola created a masterpiece for Zoe's first birthday, a little girl who can't eat gluten, eggs or refined sugar, Zola takes great pleasure in making it for all Zoe's birthday celebrations. And finally, a chapter on the recipes gleaned from her recent travels. It's a joyful book to look through, well-designed, an easy layout to follow, mouth-watering photographs to inspire.
0: Leslie Beek, you had some delightful children's books to share with us this month. This month, I've chosen
7: two books that highlight family, one British and one local, but both about something universally longed for by all children, a sense of being loved and cherished, protected and safe. I spend much of my time trying to bring books and a love of reading to children between the ages of ten and twelve, sometimes stretching that a bit when eight and nine-year-olds turn up hopefully and lie about their ages. The main criterion for them is excellence. They can cope with anything from picture books to non-fiction, as long as it's good. If it isn't, you soon see their eyes wandering away and their feet beginning to long to kick the boy next door, gently. Raj and the Best Day Ever by Seb Brown intrigues from the first page. Dad... Who happens to be a very cool tiger in stripy top and red trousers, makes a list of all the places where they're going to go. They pack their adventure bag with everything they might need, and Little Tiger wears his superhero cape to set off for the first place on their list, the library. I love it when libraries and books creep into stories. That is where they discover that Dad has forgotten to pack his wallet, with the library card and money they will need for their adventures. You really have to see this book with its wonderfully comic and interesting illustrations as the two tigers make their way through a day of quiet and free adventuring until they reach their front door again and Dad can't find the keys. They turn up quite quickly in the same zippered pocket of their adventure bag where he has successfully hidden his wallet. Although this is intended for younger children, from three upwards, it works for children of all ages. The Tiger Dad is a hero in his own way, and the day turns from disaster to delight, with initiative and inventiveness, and most of all, love. Our own Nicky Daly has already delighted our audience with the first two Toko books, and his third one, What's Up Toko?, is just as charming. In the four short stories it contains, Toko makes special soup for Mama on a cold and rainy day, has a scary time one dark night, unintentionally cultivates a snail farm, and goes on holiday to Clainmont, and, more importantly, goes home again. We could start a reading session with any of these and know that they would hold the interest of the most important part of any book, the potential readers. Making the jump from being read to to reading yourself is a huge one that many of our children never make. Books like these are invaluable bridges along the way. Raj and the Best Day Ever is written and illustrated by Seb Brown and was published by Templar Publishing UK in 2018. What's Up Toko was written and illustrated by Nikki Daly and published by Jacana in 2019.
8: She gets great after being out late Walking my baby back home Arm in arm over meadow Walking my baby back home We go along harmonizing a song I'm reciting a poem Owls go by and they give me the eye Walking my baby back home We stop for a while She gives me a smile And snuggles her head to my chest We're starting to pet And that's when I get Her powder all over my vest After I kind of straighten my tie She has to borrow my comb One kiss then we continue again Walking my baby back home The dark, So I have to park out of sight of the door till it's light She says if I try to kiss her she'll cry I dry her tears all through the night Hand in hand to a barbecue stand Right from her doorway we roam It's and then it's a pleasure again Walking my baby, talking my baby my baby. I don't mean baby.
0: That was Walking My Baby Back Home, sung by Graham Burton. Vanessa Levenstein was saddened to hear about the passing of iconic American author and poet, Toni Morrison. It so happened she was reading Remembered by Yvonne Battle Felton at the time, and she shares her thoughts on the connection with us here
9: philosopher, literary critic and novelist Julia Kristeva coined the term intertextuality. She wrote, a literary work, then, is not simply the product of a single author, but of its relationship to other texts and to the structures of language itself. I was reading Remembered, the debut novel of Yvonne Battle Felton, when the news broke that Toni Morrison had died. Beloved won the Pulitzer Prize in 1988 and tells the story of Sethe from her days as a slave to after emancipation. But can one ever escape the shackles of slavery? And what is the impact on future generations? Remembered, like Beloved, has as its major protagonists dead people. Now I'm cautious to use the term magic realism as Morrison argued that she had redefined the concept She uses magic as a device to portray her character's extraordinary powers of endurance and resistance. In Beloved, Sethe is haunted by the daughter she killed to save. And in Remembered, from the very first sentence, the protagonist Spring communicates directly with her late sister Tempe. It's 1910, and Spring's son Edward is dying in a hospital bed. He was accused of driving a streetcar into a Philadelphia department store, where he was either trying to cause or subvert an attack on civilians. Prompted by the ghost of Tempe, Spring tells Edward their story. It starts when Spring's mother Ella was kidnapped, raped, and forced into a life of slavery. In captivity, she meets Agnes, a slave girl her age, and is put in the care of Mama Skins, who is Agnes' mother. Agnes and Ella each have a child, Tempe and Spring. Spring uses newspaper clippings to help her remember. A newspaper clipping is also used in Beloved as a pivotal part of sharing information about Beloved's murder. The question of love and what love means is raised by both authors. If slavery is worse than death, would you love a child enough to kill it? Infanticide flows through the pages of Beloved. Both novels have strong matriarchs and focus on the mother-child relationship. In Remembered, Mama Skins was entrusted with the babies, with the exception of Agnes, who was spared. Each baby was loved and then killed. Agnes's daughter Tempe, on the cusp of freedom, gives birth to her son and she instinctively feels she needs to smother him to save him. Both narratives peel back the scars of slavery and the blood oozes out, shaping stories of pain and defiance. It is the very act of telling where the writer can claim their agency. Toni Morrison said, What I'm interested in is writing without the gaze, without the white gaze. In so many earlier books by African-American writers, particularly the men, I felt they were not writing to me. The Guardian wrote about remembered, Throughout the novel, the author emphasizes the importance of passing on stories of slavery, while she also points out the difficulty of telling them to a white audience that doesn't want to hear. Remembered is not beloved. It doesn't pretend to be either. It's a new writer's voice that is articulate, passionate, and truthful. Toni Morrison uses the image of trees throughout Beloved. Now, the image of a tree dispersing its seed through its fruit is perhaps lofty, but nonetheless apt for
0: the relationship between beloved and remembered. And we have a winner. Of course, the answer was spring has sprung. Tessa van Royen, a copy of Zephanie, Two Mothers, One Daughter, an Astonishing True Story by Joanne Joel, will be on its way to you shortly. Thanks, as always, to Rick Everett for the sprightly choice of music and to the fabulous Cechovazzo Modica for production. Do stay tuned for Matinee up next with Brendan Finrain. And from me, Cindy Moritz, I wish you all happy spring reading.